Hey guys, so welcome to Warden Fintech Podcast Series. Uh, I'm Aditya and today we are excited to chat with Ram Aluwalia, CEO of PRIQ, the leading player in credit risk analytics for alternative lending. Uh, welcome, Ram. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Aditya. Thank you for having me. Perfect. Uh, so kind of, um, I guess we'll uh, first love to deep dive into your background and story and kind of how you came up with the idea of PRIQ and also the first uh, few days of PRIQ, how you would describe PRIQ. Sure. Well, I'll start off with some of the, the trends I observed and then mm-hmm. the experiences that led to the development of PRIQ. So the first trend I observed, and this is back when I was at Merrill Lynch and then at Bank from Merrill Lynch, was of the Basel two and a half and Basel three capital and liquidity regime. And along with that, we saw a host of new regulations, some of which came as a part of Dodd-Frank around consumer protection, know your customer, any money laundering, uh, and other obligations uh, that made it very difficult for banks um, to generate an attractive ROE uh, in certain lines of business. So post-2008, what you saw were banks uh, retrench from credit extension. They focused on, on prime borrowers. They also focused on relationship customers uh, and were really uh, beset and, and dealing with a lot of the overhang from um, settlements related to the mortgage crisis. So that was observation one. Uh, and in that mix, I saw this growth of, of non-bank lenders that were unencumbered by the burdens from a capital and liquidity perspective that that banks uh, were dealing with. Then the second observation, which was after Bank of America Merrill Lynch, um, I was buying uh, securitizations using analytics, particularly distressed securitizations post-2008. Um, and I saw that there were these asset managers that were popping up, really like a lot of asset managers, that were buying loans on Lending Club and Prosper. Uh, and in that role, I would also have the allocation decision to uh, invest in some of these asset managers. So when I would ask them, well, how do you value your portfolio? So if I'm looking at a time series of returns, I want to look at certain metrics and statistics, drawdowns, sharp ratios, correlation, and so forth. I found that there was a lack of a standardized valuation process that would enable investor to compare returns on a consistent basis. And there were five other just challenges that I saw there as well. There was, for instance, you have illiquid credit with a three- or five-year term, but you also have hedge funds that were performing liquidity transformation. And so so there's a need to have technology to manage assets and liabilities. Clearly, there was a need for securitization to access broader pools of capital at low cost. Uh, and so those are a very concrete set of pain points that I saw. Okay. Um, and then I, uh, you know, I reached out to some of the leaders of the platforms and non-bank lenders. I said, hey, you know, you guys need to get together and coordinate and develop third-party infrastructure so you can enable capital to flow into this category. Uh, and then they turned around and said, well, hey, why don't you go build this? It sounds like a business. <laughs> and so it was off to the races. And that's what the... Okay. Uh, really the genesis of, of pure IQ. Okay, that's great. Uh, that's good to hear. Uh, so kind of like, um, what were the initial uh, reactions or thoughts you got? And uh, like you have some of the major supporters, uh, backers in pure IQ. So I was just uh, curious as to 
what was your pitch to them or what did they um, kind of freely support with the idea that they came on board? Sure. Well, I guess the, the premise that I share with them is that the vast majority of capital that will fund the industry will come from institutional investors and specifically investors in the debt capital markets as well as banks and providers of term capital mm-hmm. like private equity funds and 40 act funds. And if you, that's number one. And number two is if you believe non-bank lending is going to grow and it's a secular theme, mm-hmm. we can observe double digit non-banking lending growth in every credit asset class. And it's also a global phenomenon, which we can come back to uh, later. If you believe those two things uh, and the need for analytics to enable parties in the ecosystem from the originator that manufactures the loans to the institutional investors that buys the loans to the investment bank that finances that and ultimately ABS investors that purchase the debt, then it's very clear that you need a third party risk infrastructure, much in the same way that you have third party risk infrastructure in mature asset classes, right? So we're all familiar with Bloomberg, which operates in the QCIP space, or mm-hmm. risk metrics and BARA or BlackRock, uh, their Aladdin platform. Right. Uh, the opportunity here is that you've got uh, an emerging um, asset for institutional investors that are climbing for yield and therefore uh, securing mandates to invest in this. However, they do not have the type of infrastructure that can really help enable you know, responsible, uh, mature growth of the category. Okay, okay, that's great. Uh, so kind of, uh, what were the first few days of uh, PRIQ like, uh, in the sense, uh, what were some of the earliest challenges that you guys had to face or convince, let's say, some of the players, whether it's on the buy side or it's the loan uh, originators? Uh, so kind of just some of the major two or three challenges that you faced as you built up the business. Yeah, well, you know, the, the opportunity identification is fairly easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, its execution for a startup is always uh, the biggest challenge. And so securing a team um, and building a culture of, of leadership and high okay. standards and excellence, I would say that is probably the hardest challenge for, for, for any startup and certainly was an important focus mm-hmm. for, for ours as well. And I reached out to uh, my colleague and CEO, Kevin Reed, uh, Kevin and I both double majors at, at Columbia together. Oh, we had nice. very different, yeah, <laughs> okay. we had very different career paths. Mm-hmm. You know, I went into management consulting, uh, and finance capital markets. Kevin, you know, went to DOJ, you know, Yale Law School, McKinsey, had a very different kind of way of thinking and brought a very mm-hmm. complementary set of skills, you know, to my own. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that, that was an important part of, uh, of building the organization. So I would say, you know, focusing on execution and uh, assembling uh, a world-class team that brings complementary skills mm-hmm. is probably uh, priority one. And then the second is, where do you focus? Because, you know, when you get into it, mm-hmm. you find that there are many pain points and you know, if you're, if you're smart and capable and you've got solutions that you can offer, you'll find that uh, different players in the ecosystem will want you to solve their particular problem. Mm-hmm. And all of these problems might well be in product map at the 
appropriate point in time. Okay. But sequencing very thoughtfully, very carefully, uh, so that you can develop a, a product and commercialize that product uh, is, uh, you know, takes takes careful planning and analysis. Okay. So, uh, what would uh, could you run us through what PRIQ exactly does now and the players sure. it engages with and kind of also the vision going forward for PRIQ? Sure. So we help uh, customers at price, finance, exchange, structure, or or, or touch the risk, um, and therefore our customers include originators, specialty finance companies that manufacture loans. They include asset managers that purchase loans in banks, regional banks that provide warehouse financing or credit facilities um, to the market, uh, and then finally ABS investors. So we provide the standardization and transparency so that uh, investors and other operators of consumer credit risk can aggregate, roll up, compare, benchmark, stress test the risk in multiple different ways. We've initially focused on the unsecured consumer personal loan space uh, and online lending in particular, also also been referred to as marketplace lending. Uh, then over time, we'll, we'll extend into um, other credit verticals as well. Okay. And kind of like, uh, is there a bigger, um, like how big is the market for all this alternative lending and kind of how much uh, you feel PRIQ can kind of address or is there any specific segments that PRIQ would kind of, um, you know, foray into over time? Sure. So the of the lending market is substantial. In fact, I think over time, we will probably stop using the term alternative lending or, or marketplace lending or online lending. I just call it lending. Okay. You know, what's really happened is a new uh, customer experience through the use of technology, which enables customers to uh, apply for a loan um, in a very convenient manner online or through their phone. So it's really been a, a new channel that's been augmented by you know additional data and analytics to help underwrite and price risk in, in different ways. So that's really the innovation. Um, clearly, this innovation is touching multiple different credit classes. Uh, and that growth of non-bank lending. So that will uh, be our uh, you know, focus. So I, uh, the is the opportunity quite substantial. So you have uh, $8.5 trillion in the agency mortgage-backed securitization market. You have um, over a trillion dollars in, in student loans. Uh, outstanding a trillion dollars in, in auto loans uh, in the securitization market. Uh, you've also got $850 billion in credit card debt and then tens of billions of dollars in personal loans. And the bulk of uh, online lending, when you when you think about the lending clubs and the Prospers, uh, the Avants of the world and, and Marlette and so forth, are focused on the unsecured consumer personal loan space, which is really a small fraction of the total addressable market, you're now starting to see uh, these players and others attack other markets as well. So SoFi uh, recently conducted their first mortgage securitization, the originating loans in the mortgage industry. Uh, you have Better Mortgage, you have Ease that is also um, very active in, in the mortgage category as well. So the size of the opportunity is quite substantial. Mm-hmm. And the nature of these pain points, they do reveal themselves in, in each of these categories as well. You know, there's a need for standardization of the data, for cleaning up the data. 
And then once you have that foundation, doing higher value added analytical work so that investors can make uh, better decisions, so issuers, capital markets, and improve uh, their financing costs, uh, and also enable the parties to um, achieve their regulatory compliance goals, which might consist of, uh, you know, first testing in the case of uh, uh, certain asset managers or or, or, or valuation or, or verification. Okay. So uh, just um, kind of like trying to understand from a perspective of uh, the process that is already in place right now. So kind of before PRIQ or uh, people who do not use PRIQ, how, how does that process look like for them? Yes. Is it very manual or that is Excellent somewhere question. PRIQ yeah. comes in? So what would happen before is that you would have institutions send spreadsheets and forth and the spreadsheets contain loan data or payment data and spreadsheets from different companies had different columns like net income the net of debt income would vary maybe in one spreadsheet it includes the mortgage in the numerator and the other You'd also have spreadsheets that might contain personally identifiable information, <laughs> which is <laughs> which can be a violation of, you know, a Fair Credit Reporting Act. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, you, you, so there were definitely challenges in these spreadsheets. Not not to mention even sheer row limitations. And how do you test that data uh, mm -hmm. using that type of um, technology, um, which is really not appropriate for a world when you have uh, hundreds of hundreds of thousands of, of loans and hundreds of data points just for uh, a single you know, originator, I'm more sure. You also had, more from an analytical perspective, you had asset managers that were valuing their own collateral. Um, and in the early days, it was kind of understandable in the sense that it was a new market. And if you're, an, if you're a hedge fund that's providing liquidity on a quarterly or monthly basis, uh, investors or redeemers from that hedge fund uh, enter and at the net asset value. So if you don't have a third-party valuation agent, you had asset managers that would value their own portfolio, which of course is a, a conflict of interest. If I'm earning incentive fees as an asset manager based on the net asset value, uh, then then I've got a conflict of interest. Um, and so that's what happened in the past. That happens less so today. Um, but those are those are some of the the, the, the practices in the industry, um, you know, prior to uh, our services. Wow, that's very interesting. Like you guys are really uh, kind of making it much more streamlined and uh, kind of fall in one place. Uh, so you mentioned uh, the securitization markets, the MBS, and kind of yeah. the student loan um, securitization. Uh, could you run us through like some of the steps of securitization and also your view on? the whole of the securitization market in terms of how it's evolving and maybe is the yeah. asset class coming back to its pre-2008 popularity or is it evolving sure. in a new different direction altogether? Sure. So let's start off with the motivations for securitization then go through the process. Mm -hmm. So the motivation for securitization is liquidity or financing. So imagine you're a three-year-old non-bank lender you're a startup, you've got, therefore, limited operating history, you might be cash flow negative, and you're originating these high-quality student loans. Uh, what securitization enables 
this kind of originator do is separate the credit risk of the collateral, namely the student loans, from the corporate credit risk or the going concern risk of the originator of the loans. And so now we'll get into the steps of securitization. So in the securitization process, you'll have a, a sponsor of a securitization, which is typically also the originator of the loans. Uh, and the sponsor of the securitization will set up a special purpose vehicle. They will send loans into the special purpose vehicle. Uh, there's typically an investment bank that will write bonds um, off of the SPV. So the proceeds of the button sales are then uh, remitted back to the sponsor of the securitization. And those bonds are then placed to investors in the debt capital markets, ABS investors, which could consist of insurance companies, credit hedge funds, uh, banks, or, or private equity companies, depending on the type of credit risk and the requirement for, for ratings and liquidity and so forth. So th that's the process of the securitization. And what that does is a couple of things. And number one is opens up the market for financing. So it's very difficult for insurance companies in the U.S. Uh, or banks uh, in, in several cases um, or asset managers to buy raw whole loans manufactured from an originator. One is the corporate credit risk we discussed. And second is the format of that credit risk. However, if we transform, say, $100 million worth of loans into a security, uh, into a marketable security, and that is what the process of securitization does, then because of the regulatory and mandate requirements, that opens up the pool of eligible investors substantially. Uh, and by broadening that pool of investment capital, that, in turn, can lower the funding cost for the originator, which is very attractive because an originator that is a startup with a couple of years of history is going to have difficulty or maybe impossible to finance their growth with a corporate credit line. Uh, however, because you've separated the uh, credit risk of the collateral into a special purpose vehicle, investors can have confidence that even if that originator disappears one day, that you've got a separate pool of collateral with a backup servicer, with an independent trustee, ongoing verification and monitoring, so that they can underwrite to the cash flows of the collateral, uh, and as opposed to the uh, going concern uh, of the originator. Okay. And Kenneth, so coming back to that same point that uh, do you see that trend in the securitization market changing? Kind of like, so could, could you compare something to a pre-2008 level? And do you see markets coming back as, um, I mean, uh, the houses uh, are kind of delevering and the economy is getting better. So there's more and more kind of securitization market is picking up, but do you see it kind of going back to the pre-2008 level? Or what are some of the hurdles sure. you would see getting there? Sure. So, yeah, I'll, I'll start with where we've been, uh, where we are now, then, then where we're going. So, you know, when we started the, our business, it was based on the premise that the vast majority of these loans would find a home uh, in a term securitization or bank balance sheet. Um, three months after they founded the business, you had the first rate of securitization where BlackRock and, and Citi securitized 
a pool of, of Prosper loans. Um, and now you have 72 plus rated securitizations year over year from 2016 to 2015, there's 59% growth in ABS issuance volumes. So securitization is growing rapidly and for all the reasons we discussed, it avails originators or provides access to low cost uh, capital um, at scale. So that's where we are now. We continue to see robust growth uh, this year. Uh, there are some challenges. Number one is uh, with Dodd-Frank, there was a, a risk retention rule, uh-huh. uh, 5% risk retention requirement, which uh, will slow the pace of capital velocity. As said, you know, marketplace lenders have lost their business models in anticipation of that rule. So you're still seeing this robust 50% growth, and we don't see a slowdown in issuance here. In fact, PRQ estimates we'll see 50% growth in issuance this year. However, what we don't know is what would volumes have been otherwise? What's the counterfactual in a world where there is no risk retention requirement? You know, non-banks are, um, have this unique ability to generate a high dollar volume of loans per unit of capital, more so than banks and, and other types of financial institutions. So risk retention uh, certainly is a, uh, measures the pace of growth um, for the category. Uh, the second is that there are a host of regulations introduced post offering, um, several of which I think make a lot of sense, some of which I think we ought to revisit. For example, by providing, there's a requirement for publicly registered securitizations to provide transparency at the asset level and loan level. Um, and so now you have firms like PureIQ that are closely scrutinizing the bonds, breaking down the bonds, providing transparency at a loan level, uh, providing a lot of research so that you're not going to have the type of crisis we saw in 08. Again, I'm sure we'll have some other financial crises, but it won't be that same type and, 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 and uh, of crisis that happened. So there are disclosure obligations, um, and there are also some liabilities that are placed on the sponsors of publicly uh, registered securitizations. Uh, and that is slowing the pace of publicly registered securitizations and shifting securitization to the private placement or Rule 144 market. In fact, all of the placements are done via private placement as opposed to public securitizations. And that is something that regulators need to need to address: is how do we lower the regulatory costs and namely the liability associated with a publicly registered securitization while maintaining a higher standard for disclosure uh, and transparency. Okay. Yeah, that's that's pretty uh, that's pretty insightful. Um, so in terms of uh, kind of going back to the whole marketplace uh, lending ecosystem, uh, how how you think that has kind of evolved with the entrance of all these new fintech players per se, like the SoFi's and the Prospers and Kind of, uh, how would you describe uh, kind of the different parts of the ecosystem, and is there any sure. new trend or opportunity in this whole space that you see, which is kind of yeah. not being targeted right now? Sure, sure. So, marketplace lending initially started as this peer-to-peer concept. The first originator globally was Zopa in the UK. You had Prosper in the US, and and Lending Club. So the main shift that's happened over the last few, uh, several years is the embrace of institutional capital, uh, which makes a lot of sense, right? If you look around the world today, you have 
real rate, and in some areas of the world, you have incurves and tensions that have liability obligations that need to solve foreign asset managers that are looking uh, to to generate um, uh, a return. And non-bank lenders are, are generating um, between the that has to do with the interest that we talked about. So now, can non-bank lenders embrace more institutional capital? So what are the different buckets of institutional capital? Uh, one is securitization, which we talked about. We continue to see that as really an essential pillar to fund origination growth. Actually, in Lending Club's recent earnings announcement, they announced uh, really in a, in, a, in a major shift that they will have a, um, a quarterly issuance where Lending Club will fund loans on the balance sheet and develop a, a shelf for securitization. So that, that's certainly, you know, we've come a long way from a pure retail to retail um, funding model. Um, um, and the second big bucket uh, would be bank partnerships. Uh, so you're seeing a number of different partnerships with major money center banks. For example, uh, Citibank recently partnered with a, uh, a small business lender, Biz2Credit. Citibank two years ago announced their partnership with Lending Club where Citibank is able to achieve their Community uh, Reinvestment Act objectives by purchasing loans from the Lending Club platform. J.P. Morgan announced a partnership with OnDeck. They made an equity investment in Avant. Uh, Goldman Sachs is providing, uh, it's publicly known as providing warehouse lines to multiple players in the category, but also involved with their own consumer lender. Uh, and so the, the bank market is certainly an attractive source of uh, funding uh, through warehouse lines or also in terms of whole loan purchases. Um, and the, the third bucket you're seeing are, are providers of term capital, which can be 40X funds, uh, can also be private equity funds that are um, generating uh, more efficient and simpler ways to access the asset class than traditionally, right? So, uh, you know, mom and pop really don't have the expertise, I think, to go online and underwrite a consumer and understand credit bureau data and credit cycles. However, now, you know, mom and pop investor can invest with a, uh, via a 40X fund that uh, benefits from the investor protections uh, and disclosure of all SEC registered They operate in an institutional manner and they can also avail themselves of, of liquidity as well. So those are, those are the trends that are emerging. Um, in terms of new new product areas, uh, the auto market is, is seeing more interest. Lending Club announced that they will have an auto product that they'll be originating. There are other lenders out there, such as um, AutoFi and Octane, that have started to build lending businesses there as well. Ford Motor Credit invested in one of these originators, so I've seen uh, more activity. Uh, I think mortgage is a very exciting opportunity area. It's a very large market. I don't think it's been as explored as full as it can be. Um, so in mortgage, uh, per, per Dodd-Frank, you had the introduction of certain regulations that prescribe the types of mortgages that Fannie and Freddie would purchase. And mortgages that are not out, that are outside that criteria but still credit worthy um, are an opportunity for, uh, for entrepreneurs to build an interesting business around. 
Okay. Uh, so kind of going back to uh, your points on specifically the auto lending uh, sector, uh, do you see any kind of, what are your thoughts on uh, kind of the growth of auto lending and um, kind of some of, uh, you know, specific things uh, these platforms need to do to make sure that it kind of grows at a certain pace? Um, yeah. Well, the I think the area of opportunity in, in um, auto, uh, at least from our perspective, is the credit risk analytics on subprime auto lending. So the last several years, you've seen an uptick in delinquency uh, in subprime auto lending. Uh, subprime auto lending is also dominated by non-bank lenders. And therefore, because they do not have access to cheap deposit financing, rely on securitization and whole loan or forward flow agreements with institutional investors to attract capital. So from our perspective, you know, we see that as an interesting opportunity to um, help reduce the uh, the inefficiencies in conveying risk to to the capital markets. Okay. And kind of uh, just trying to understand, so in terms of trying to better analyze that credit risk, uh, it kind of goes again, uh, you guys would go down with more alternative data points, for example, uh, like how the loan is underwritten in terms of uh, as compared to the current processes. So just trying to understand how that yeah, process sure, would be sure, different exactly. from. So, exactly. So, uh, you know, credit underwriting is a, a, a really like a, a game theoretic problem, right? Mm-hmm. Let me explain what I mean by that. Mm-hmm. So if you get an offer for a credit card in your mailbox, maybe you have an offer from American Express, Capital One, the Chase Reserve Card, uh, a high-quality borrower will have multiple offers, and they're going to respond to the best offer, and the most important value prop they care about is the interest rate. Um, when we when each of these issuers go to market with their card offers, they can observe the other offer that their competitors will make. They can see what offers they've made in the past, um, and and through through you know limited technology, namely scanning and compilation of direct mail statements and cheap. Uh, however, that opacity creates issues because if I'm an underwriter and I'm pricing the loan higher than my peer group, then I'm going to face for selection. Uh, because a, a quality borrower will pick the best offer um, available. If I'm the high rate in the market and, and I have, there's no other offer going to that customer, I'm going to be adversely selected by that borrower and have the you know, worst performance, uh, all things being equal. Mm-hmm. So that's an opportunity you know, for, for third parties to provide you know, services to help uh, underwriters uh, monitor uh, their pricing, their delinquency, their default um, against their peer group, and similarly for for investors to um, hold non-bank lenders accountable uh, in their underwriting process and measure expected versus actual uh, performance okay. on the path of losses and and delinquencies and prepayments. Okay. Okay. Sounds great. Uh, and kind of uh, coming back to peer IQ. Uh, so you mentioned how uh, these banks are kind of partnering with some of these loan originators and kind of freely uh, providing that credit line. Uh, just uh, wondering in terms of with PRIQ specifically, what are the players you work with? 
kind of one-on-one to make sure your platform is getting better? Or do you guys end up partnering with banks to kind of maybe customize the platform and then uh, make it much more standardized or any specific uh, partnerships which help you right sure. to refine the platform? Sure. Yeah, we have, we have several you know bank um, customers, large investment bank customers, um, as well as uh, a, a even community bank um, customers. Uh, and so what we'll do in that case, we will provide the credit facility management analytics. Let me explain what that means. Mm-hmm. So let's say I'm an investment bank, have a warehouse or a credit facility to a non-bank lender. I will have certain eligible collateral rules that govern uh, the types of loans I'm willing to finance. Since loans be over a FICO of 660. Um, the loan must not be in New York, Connecticut, Vermont, over this type of interest rate. Uh, and then I'll also have other criteria. I will have um, tests to guard against excess concentrations in particular states. Uh, and I also have tests to ensure that uh, I'm not financing a portfolio if the path of delinquencies is, is higher than um, initially expected. So what our software will do for those investment banks is It'll first help the investment bank underwrite the facility by helping them to project cash flows uh, for different uh, pools and potential criteria that they that would then become covenants in a contract. The second is once that facility is is launched, we will monitor the facility for the uh, uh, bank so it can take some proactive action um, to a potential breach of a covenant, which can be damaging to the reputation uh, as well as the the borrower, the non-bank lender, or potentially investment manager. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, cool. Um, also, like uh, in terms of uh, kind of specific uh, side of different uh, people that are different players that PRIQ uh, would kind of come in and service. So. Is there any specific set of customers you guys think would you would want to target in the future, or is there uh, kind of any party that you guys are missing as of now? I would say, I mean, for for us, you know, we, we work with finance exchange originate the risk off the value chain. So, you know, the value chain is you have the originator, uh, then you have the uh, investor that provides the balance sheet. In some cases, that is also the originator, and especially finance companies. You have the warehouse lender, which is typically an investment bank or regional bank. Uh, uh, And then you have the the final buyers of the loans uh, in the case of securitization, which are ABS investors. So we've really been focused on those first three buckets um, so far. Um, And I think over time, we'll focus on the ABS investor market uh, and taking that same analytical infrastructure and technology to other credit verticals. Okay. Okay. Wow. That's great. Uh, so kind of moving on, uh, one question we always uh, kind of wonder is, and given you're always at some of these main conferences uh, in structured finance, so some of the major themes that you're seeing across at the recent conferences yeah. like the SFIG or the Lendit or any other ones you've kind of come across. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the SFA conference just concluded this past week. Uh, SFIG had record attendance, mm-hmm. and the investor sentiment or the sentiment on the ground there really quite reversed from last year. Last year at this time, 
sentiment was a bit dour. Uh, securitization markets uh, were closed in some cases, uh, and this, uh, much higher volatility and concern about a global slowdown. And this time around, you of course you have you know banks and actual stocks that are up uh, 24% plus. Uh, you know Goldman Sachs' stock is up far higher than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have the prospect of deregulation of certain components of Dodd-Frank, uh, namely the risk retention rule, which would be a yeah, the securitization market would certainly be a beneficiary of that in terms of issuance uh, and also potentially other types of regulation as well, capital and liquidity regulation, uh, consumer protection, CFPB regulation, um, uh, the fiduciary rule and other things. So the you know, uh, the sentiment really, I would say, remarkably, into a, um, at a major investment bank. We had dinner last night. He, he's a, he's a, he's a well-paid individual there who's a leader of his group. And he's, uh, you know, he, he's been waiting to get fired the last couple of years because he has this kind of periodic investing problem. Uh-huh. <laughs> he can't leave, leave a lot of money on the table in terms of his, his, uh, options. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they accelerate, he gets fired, but, you know, he's like the last guy standing, he's still there. Cut up for change, opportunity, and bonus is improved. Um, look, banks today are still compliant, innovation-driven. Um, I would not recommend to, you know, the students at Wharton to have a long-term career uh, in that kind of environment, if you have an interest in building products and solving a lot of problems, or if you do, maybe a couple of years tour of duty, tour of duty to develop that expertise and move on. Mm-hmm. Um, not to digress. So I would say the, uh, the mood and the sentiment is really remarkably um, improved. There's a lot of optimism. We'll, we'll have to see what actually translates into policy and legislation. Um, that is a very messy process, and markets have have. Uh, run so far ahead that it's almost as if they're baking in their perfect policy execution, which, which you know, I'm, I'm personally skeptical of. Okay. Uh, so kind of, it's very interesting you touched upon uh, kind of some of your advice for the students uh, graduating and given your vast experience and kind of first on the capital market side and then uh, with PRIQ, uh, kind of two questions. So one would be uh, any advice specifically uh, kind of in the long-term career path you would advise people or students graduating uh, and looking for uh, entering the financial markets, whether it's on the fintech side or kind of on the financial capital market side and kind of second would be on the more people trying to follow the entrepreneurial path um, any specific advice you would have for them sure yeah and I'll, I'll focus more on the financial services and, and fintech mm-hmm. and then expand more on entrepreneurship sure so yeah, in, in um, financial services you can predict the behavior of banks and volumes and issuance in if you follow the regulation. Uh, in fact, successful analytics companies um, are, are close students of, of regulation. So, you know, conditional value at risk was really popularized by risk metrics as fun more in the late 90s. Uh, you know, benchmarking uh, and so forth really, again, helped, helped ARA um, and investment managers monitor their portfolio exposure and separate, you know, idiosyncratic alpha from, from generic sector exposure. So 
you know, really, really focus on regulation. The key regulations focus on, you know, the thousand of capital liquidity, um, regime, you know, downstream, KYC, consumer protection. All those create challenges for banks and opportunities, you know, for, for entrepreneurs. Um, the second I would say is, you know, become expert at something, do something very well. Um, so, okay, that's very narrowly focused. In fact, that's even better. Um, I know entrepreneurs that are providing solutions to help banks net out over-the-counter derivatives. I think that's an amazing idea because it can help banks release a lot of regulatory capital. And that entrepreneur wakes up every day and he's got no competition because no one knows what he's talking about. So finding opportunities that require a high level of expertise. And our example, security is a very good example of that. There, it's a highly technical subject area. You have to write. Is um, for really students focus on growth and learning, not just main content, uh, but also leadership skills you know, as well, and help you um, uh, continue to help and, and, and grow. Um, what else? And from an entrepreneurial perspective, um, you know, first, as someone that's con- contemplating joining an entrepreneurial organization. Or second, starting one, right? So, um, you know, be skeptical of the latest trends and fad. You know, develop your own point of view. Uh, do your homework because you're investing a substantial amount of your human capital, blood, sweat, and tears over several several years. And, you know, entrepreneurship requires significant, you know, personal sacrifice. It's not for the faint of heart. It can be incredibly rewarding. Uh, but you, you have to make sure you do your, your homework up front. And then in, t- in terms of types of options, just personally more on enterprise versus consumer. Um, and anytime I'm sure with a couple of friends, you say, hey, how do we find a better way to split pay our payments here? And you got a dozen different <laughs> entrepreneurs out there solving the same problem. So again, uh-huh. more um, enterprise type solutions. Focus on hard problems, not impossible problems. Hard problems that have uh, you know, more barriers to entry uh, that are also well defined. Uh, identify customer target. You can write down their names on a list. Uh, focus on identifying who the decision makers are, uh, and then you then build your business accordingly. Okay, that's super helpful. Uh, I guess that gives us a good framework of analyzing things. Uh, kind of. Uh, so we're pretty close to our uh, time. And wanted to wrap up with one question, um, which is more um, kind of uh, given just the whole evolution of technology and kind of fintech coming in. Um, what do you see as the overall, maybe a long term 10 to 15, 20 year crystal ball of kind of the, all the players, the banks and kind of technology platforms coming in? Do you see banks becoming more of like fintech platforms over time? Uh, and it, it, it's just your view. Uh, would love to know what are your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, making making predictions twenty years out is it's virtually so impossible. <laughs> really, really is. I agree. <laughs> to the span seven to ten years, start to make predictions with it now. So I would say, and I'll, I'll I'll do my best to answer your question in any case. But after that disclaimer, mm-hmm. so you know one. 
you know, I would say that um, we are seeing banks um, invest in financial technology. Um, uh, almost all the major investment banks and commercial banks have some type of investment group that's looking to adopt or apply technology in a different way. Um, personally, I think the most successful banks in the future will conceive of themselves as data and technology companies. Uh, all recently about how, uh, as software engineers that are reinventing a process, Goldman, there was another article a couple of weeks ago about how they have desk straps or really technologists, software engineers, that are reinventing the offering process for an IPO. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so you, I think the I think that is uh, what's necessary for banks to compete uh, and grow. Um, they have to embrace technology, and they are making those investments uh, now. But it is going to be a you know very the relationship with consumers and a financial change. Um, so historically, you had your local bank branch office. And you know you knew your banker, and that banker gave you the mortgage, and helped you um, achieve you know different you know banking objectives. Now that experience has changed. I want to exchange money overseas. I might use you know, TransferWise for remittance. Um, if I want to invest in the stock market and avoid paying active manager fees, I might use a, a robo advisor like a like a future advisor. Um, if I want to gain exposure to a certain asset class and alternative investments, there are multiple different startups that will help me do that. Um, and, you know, startups also appreciate the role of relationship um, and not merely the transaction or the purely rational um, value proposition, right? So, so far it's building this kind of community and membership and a relationship. And of course, these are the same things that made American Express an incredibly valuable organization over time they now have like a, a dating app i think right <laughs> uh so you know so uh it, it, i think um i think banks are are learning they're observing um and i think for, for banks to uh maintain share and competitive advantage they need to reconceive of themselves as data and technology uh, organizations okay uh, great. Yeah, I mean, uh, I totally agree with you. And we ended up uh, visiting SoFi uh, as a warden fintech trek last last week um, and got some very interesting insights into the, especially the community building part that you're referring to. Um, uh, thanks so much, Ram. This is super insightful. Uh, and uh, we had a great time chatting with you. Um, and uh, I guess like we'll take our leave for now. Um, thank you guys for joining us. Um, thank you. Thank you, Jitya. Thanks for having me. Take care now. Bye. Thank you.